Testing? All right. Greetings, everyone. Um, thank you for trusting me to preach the gospel today. Um, I see so many fam familiar faces, uh, so good to see all of you. Uh, by the way, I'm here with my wife and my two children here. I'm just so glad to be here, and uh, I'm honored to minister to you uh, today. And this morning, me and Tezar was uh, uh, texting, and, and he's just praying for me right now. He's kind of nervous, maybe, because he's it's not, <laughs> you know, I'm preaching. But we pray that the gospel with, uh, th that will be preached today and will calibrate all of our hearts and and, you know, the gospel can speak to all of us. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of the city of Jakarta, there is a covenant city church, a gospel-centered church that you planted several years ago. The church that is not just a building, but it's, it's not an organization, but it's the people in it. We pray that you speak to your church today, the people, that everyone who listen online or on-site, the church is listening to you. Use me as a minister so I may decrease and you may increase. May the gospel be centered and may the gospel touch and calibrate all of our hearts today. Amen. Well, if you want to make sure to not make an absolute mess of your life, if you're going to make it through life, then you need what we're going to talk about today. The secular culture talks about science, facts, technologies, economy as the answer to life. But then the moral communities such as churches, religious communities from different religions, all they talk mostly are morality. But actually what we need is something that hardly talked about. It's not knowledge, it's not moral goodness, it's wisdom. We've been talking about it since the beginning of the service. And that's what we're going to look at today as we discuss the book of Proverbs. So we're going to read three passages from the book of Proverbs. Um, I would like to invite you to look at uh, all these three passages. Proverbs 8, 10 to 16, I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to jump to uh, verse 22 to 31, and then we're going to go to the last chapter, well, one chapter before the last uh, in Proverbs 30. I'm going to read it to you, verse 10. By the way, Proverbs is poetry, so this is wisdom personified, wisdom talking. So I'm going to start verse 10. Choose my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her I Wisdom dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion to fear the Lord is to hate evil I hate pride and arrogance evil behavior and perverse speech Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power by me Kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule on earth. Then we jump to verse 22. The Lord possesses me at the beginning of his work. So wisdom talking during creation. At the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields and the first of the dust of the world. When he, he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the water might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him. 
I like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing with him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. Now we're going to go to Proverbs 30, verse 1 to 4. The saying of Agur, the son of Jacob, an oracle. This, the man declared to Ithiel and Ithiel to Eucal. I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the water in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. This is God's word. So I have three points today. I follow CCC um, pattern. (laughs) The importance and the definition of wisdom. The consistency of the order of God and the brokenness of the world. And then the third one is the how the gospel restored that brokenness. You know, now Proverbs is one of the five books of wisdom in the Bible. On the surface, Proverbs may seem like the writer, which is whether it's Solomon, King Solomon, or the Hebrew wise sages. Proverbs are filled with simply, mostly people think, it's just simply principle to follow. Some scholar even says that Proverbs seems to be just establishing a moral framework of God's covenant people. However, today as we read Proverbs, it's very important to understand that there is a context which uh, new covenant believers like us are to read and obey Proverbs. And that context is the gospel context in redemptive historical context. We need to read Proverbs not just as a rule book or wisdom principle alone because it is pointing toward the gospel of Jesus Christ if you look closely. Because if you don't, when we read Proverbs just like a rule book or moralistic way, then we will read it in a very legalistic way like the law. When you and I, for example, able to apply Proverbs, then we will boast. We will be prideful and pompous if we think that this is us following the law. If we reap the benefit of being successful or if we are blessed, we will think that all those blessings and all those benefits is because we obey the law. This is where we can be, become a prideful conservative, you know. Uh, however, when we fail to obey or fail to observe Proverbs in our lives, then we will swing to the other extreme. We can become antinomian, licentious. We're turned off by all the rules or biblical principles, and we can become liberalistic. We will think, ah, we don't need all those rules. You know, then you become Instead of an arrogant conservative, then you become an arrogant liberals. That's why at the end of the sermon, we will always need to see Proverbs through the lens of the gospel. So number one, point number one, the importance and the definition of wisdom. Now the first three verses, uh, um, verse 10 to 13, is, you, know, you can see that the importance of wisdom. Look at the progression here. By the way, in Proverbs 8, wisdom, again, as I told you earlier, is personified. This is wisdom talking. Wisdom is speaking. And wisdom says, I'm more important than silver, than gold, than jewels. And finally, wisdom gets all the way down to greater than anything you may desire. Wow, that's very strong. Let me put it in a nutshell. Wisdom is saying that 
I, wisdom, is infinitely more important than all the wealth, all the fame, all the power in the world. Wisdom is infinitely more important than all the fame, looks, good circumstances possible. Why is that? Well, all of us actually know about this. There are lots of people who have talent, who have intellect, who have charisma, who have the credential, and who have all the beauty, but they've gone nowhere. In fact, some of them, their lives are all messed up, right? You've seen that. However, you also see some other people who have little talent, not much credential, not much beauty, not much charisma, but then they've done very, very well. What's the difference? It's wisdom. Now, let me put a pause here. Many, many people think wisdom is moral goodness. As a pastor, a lot of people ask me a lot of questions. Pastor, can we do this? Can we get into that business? Can I marry that person? Well, it's not just moral goodness, you know. It's related to it. Wisdom is related to moral goodness, but it's not identical to it. Let me explain. You have to agree, by the way, to be unethical is foolish in the long run, right? Even the business school tell you, be ethical because it is beneficial, it's smart in the long run. So obviously, wisdom is not being less than ethical. It's far more. For example, if you want to help a poor family out of poverty, that's good. That's noble. That's right. Now, you can do it completely ethical, but if you're not wise in the way you help these poor family, you will still ruin their lives, right? Isn't that right? Because without wisdom, you're not helping them. You can enable them to continue to live in the vicious cycle of poverty. So, it's not enough to be morally good. It's not enough to be people of vision. Nowadays, churches are saying about vision all the time. It's not enough to be people of principle. Nowadays, all the motivators is talking about principles. You have to be the people of wisdom or you're going to ruin your life and the lives of the people around you. Now, th this doesn't mean that we don't need facts, rules, knowledge, you know, science. If you had all the knowledge, you could choose the right car, right? That's why you research. <laughs> Maybe the right medicine if you have the right science. But the vast majority of the decision that we actually face every day, facts, science, knowledge, just mere knowledge, will not help you. For example, I'll give you for example. For those of you who are single, who do you marry? You can't just marry a person based on facts and knowledge. You need wisdom. Do you get married? You need wisdom. Who should you date? Do you break up? <laughs> you know, those are the questions. What career should you go into? What school should you go to? Should I stay in Jakarta? Should I move to Gading Serbong? Should I move to Surabaya? Should I move to Singapore? You need wisdom. Should I stay here? Should I go to find another job? Should I confront a person, this person that really annoy you? Or should I hold back? Should I take the risk? Or should I play it safe? Do you realize wrong decision in one of those things can be a disaster of your life, right? Yet, rules, facts, knowledge doesn't really cover them. We live in a culture where on one hand, you have the scientific, secular culture that thinks scientific expertise will give you all the answers. But it doesn't give you the answer to all the questions that I just asked. On most of the things, 
Of course, there are people in the church, the moral people will say, well, morality is important. Of course it's important. It's absolutely critical, but it doesn't help you in these areas. So let's move down in the, in the text, verse 12 to 16. You'll see there are a lot of synonyms. If you read the whole book of Proverbs, you'll find these synonyms continually come up. Again, here's wisdom speaking. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I have insight, and so on. Many of these Hebrew words are important synonyms throughout the book that gives us perspective on wisdom. Let me give you three perspectives real quick. So sub-point of the first point. First, you know, you can see that wisdom has insight, verse 14. That's the Hebrew word bina, which actually means knowing how things supposed to work, how things really work, how things supposed to happen. And secondly, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. That's not the best English translation, but anyway, here's a word that means to notice little distinction, which means wisdom is knowing not just how things work, but what the real situation is, how things are right now. For example, I'll just give you an example so it it will be more clear. If you watch a detective movie or a CSI, the detective will walk into a room and it's all a mess. For you and me, if you and I walk into that room, it's just a mess. But then the detective will see. I see clues. He sees little things. You see blur. Me, I will be blurred. You know, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. But then he sees little distinction. Did you see that couch? Did you see that knife? Did you, did you see that book? It doesn't belong there. And suddenly the detective knows what really happens. See, wisdom is knowing how things supposed to work, how things supposed to uh, happen, how things really work. And secondly, knowing how things really are, what the real situation is. But then knowing those two is not enough. Lastly, verse 15, it says here, By me, kings reign and rulers decree the right thing. So wisdom is not just knowing how things really work, how things really are, the situation is, but also what am I supposed to do about it? What should I do about it? That's why um, there's a, a guy... Um, who studied Hebrew culture. His name is Gerhard von Rath, who wrote Wisdom in Israel. He says the definition of wisdom. This is what he says. It's becoming competent with regard to the realities of life, knowing how things really happen, how things are supposed to work, knowing how things really are, what the real situation is, and knowing what to do about it. And von Rath says somewhere that it is also a person with character and mind and heart that somehow managed to do the right thing even when the rules, the facts don't apply or don't align. And that's wisdom, according to him. Now we enter to point number two. Now I'm just giving you facts here. So, you know, you will know, okay, this is what wisdom is all about. But then wisdom goes to something else. This is point number two. The consistency of the order of God and the brokenness of the world. You're probably wondering, what is this? Why we need to talk about the order of God? Well, you will see. Let's keep moving down the passage. In Proverbs 8, verse 22 and following, don't forget, this is poetry. Suddenly, wisdom speaks about creation. Wisdom says, I was with the Lord when the Lord made absolutely everything that was made. 
Before the mountains, I was with the Lord. Before the sea, I was with the Lord. When the Lord made the sea, when the Lord made human beings as well, I was there. Not just the physical, but also in the spiritual. When He made everything, I was there. God made everything with wisdom. Now, this is, has a this has very big implication. That means, this is apologetics, the world's not being based on random accident. It's not by chance. It's not just happen, but the world is based on wisdom. The sages of Israel, the wise of Israel, says that wisdom worked. There is a system. Because if God created the world according to wisdom, there is a fabric. There is a pattern to all reality. It's not random. It's not by chance, but it's by design. There's a fabric. There's a pattern to all world's reality. If wisdom made the world, then wisdom can perceive that pattern. To a great degree, we need to perceive that pattern if we want to live in wisdom. To a great degree, we need to live in accordance to that pattern. Then, if we live according to that pattern, then we live wisely. For example, I'll give you an example for physical reality. For example, the pattern of the law of gravity. The pattern of the law of aerodynamic. That's a pattern, right? If you drop this mic, it's not going to go up. It's going to go down. See, if an object that takes an advantage of the fabric reality of gravity, then you can use it for our advantage. For example, today you go up and down through an elevator. That is taking advantage of that pattern. That pattern of the law of gravity. For example, an object that obeys the pattern of aerodynamic will fly. That's why you go to the airport, you'll see plane taking off. But if it disregards the rules of aerodynamic that are the physical reality, then it will crash. Ah, says the sage, you know. If there is a pattern to physical, that means there is a pattern as well in our psychological. There is a pattern. That's why you see, if you read the Proverbs, there's a pattern to relationship. There's a pattern to marriage life. There's a pattern to work. There's a pattern to society. There's a pattern to family life. And if you don't live according to that pattern, then your relationship will crash. Your marriage will be disordered. Your work will fail. Society, your family, and your health will be a mess. Why? Because you're not following that pattern. Now, if you're a legalist and moralist, you'll say, See, I told you, there's a pattern. There's a pattern. See, I'm following that pattern. That's why I'm, I'm blessed. That's why my life is good. Look at my life. See, I've been following that pattern. Then you probably say, I told you so. Those fools, they're lazy. That's why they're poor. That's why their life is miserable. Unlike me. <laughs> we need to repent if we're like that, right? But then, if you get to Proverbs 16, suddenly you begin to see exception to those patterns. There are problems with those patterns and principles. For example, for example, a number of Proverbs says that some people who live according to God's moral pattern, principle, they still have lousy life. Then it says some people who, although they work very, very hard, they're not lazy but then they stay poor because of oppression. 
Some people that work really, really honest, some honest people, but then they're taking advantage. Somebody stole from them. Somebody being um, manipulated. Somebody that raised their children according to Proverbs principle, but then when they grow old, they rebel. Their children go off track. Now, if you're liberal, you will say, see, I told you, those legalists are wrong. Those conservatives, they, they care, all they care about is about, all about rules, pattern. Life is unfair. Life is messy. The principle doesn't work. So just do whatever you want. See, that's, that's the other extreme. Now, listen to this. What is wisdom? Now, there are fools in both camp, both extremes. If you will not admit there is a pattern and you don't want to submit to the pattern and you want to make up your own rules, if you say, I want to determine what's right and what's wrong with me according to my own pattern, then you're being a fool. But then, if you go to the other side as well, oh, I know the whole pattern. If you think you're, you can understand the whole pot pattern, see, I've been following it. That's why I'm blessed. That's why I am, I'm successful. Well, one day you will experience the exception. You will experience that those rules doesn't always apply. And then you become what? You become a fool. You can be a liberal fool or you can become a conservative fool. You can be a liberist, liberalistic fool or moralistic fool. If you want to have a perfect example of conservative fool, today we look at the book of Job. Remember his friends? Job's friends? Job is suffering. Everything has gone wrong. His life has fallen apart. His children have died. Job lost all his money. Job's friends come in. And being who they are, and of course Job's friend, they probably know Proverbs, <laughs> right? Because if they're Jews, then they know chapter 10 to 15. They read all those things and they say, if you live morally, then your life should go well. They look at Job and say, hmm, your life's not going well. Job, you must be sinning. You must be doing something wrong. They're harsh. They're bad comforters. <laughs> They're legalistic. They're moralistic. They have held one end of this pattern stick. They know there's a pattern, but they think they can see it all. They think they can understand it all. They know how life customarily work, but they don't think there are any exception. In a nutshell, if you're the kind of person who says, if I live a good life, my life will go well. Let me tell you this, you're a conservative fool. If you're the kind of person, I can decide my own pattern. I can decide my own reality. I can decide what is wrong and what is right. I don't believe there's some defined order I have to submit. Then you're a liberal fool. Wisdom has problem. The consistent pattern of the order of God is not that consistent after all. Wisdom has problem. Why? What happened? What happened to the design? What happened to the pattern? Why it's broken? The honest is being oppressed. The hard worker is being exploited. The faithful is being taken advantage. The pure is being manipulated. The innocent is being victimized. What happened to the pattern? Let me tell you, folks. Sin happens. The order of God is broken because of the fall of men into the sin in the Garden of Eden. Although the principle is right, but then the exception to the pattern also happens all the time. The brokenness in this world trample upon the design of God many times. 
The Old Testament, the wisdom literature, Psalm, Job, are filled with question. Why do the innocent suffer? In other words, can we make sense of it? How can we see wisdom behind it? How do we learn to deal with that? That's the worst of the reality of all. Horrendous evil, horrendous suffering, outrageous evil. How do we get to the wisdom to deal with all that? Maybe some of you say, well, pastor, if I see a world without suffering, there's no wisdom. Yes, you're right. But there's ordinary suffering, but then there's horrendous suffering. Let me give you an example. It's one thing to say the person I want to marry broke up with me. That's awful. That's suffering. But it's another thing for your spouse to suddenly drop dead because of brain cancer and leave you with three little kids. That's real suffering. It's one thing to say, my parents die, I love them so much, and I'm in grief. That's suffering. Yes, it's, it's valid. But it's another thing to have your teenage daughter commit suicide. It's, it's another thing to have 300 children shot by terrorists dying in their blood. It's another suffering to see suicide bomber kill hundreds of people. A mother and a child became a suicide bomber. That, that's scary. That's brokenness. That's terrible. That's evil. When you look at that, when you look at horrendous, outrageous evil and suffering, and there's a lot of that in the world, you see the news. If you try to say, well, you know, suffering and trouble is one of the ways we can learn wisdom, then that's insufficient response. If true, if it's true, then wisdom is able to handle all reality. That's part of the reality that seems to devastate wisdom. Horrendous suffering. Now, you probably will ask questions. Is there hope? Are we going to live like this for the rest of my life? Our lives? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, there is. Yes, there's hope. That hope is in the gospel. Point number three. How the gospel restore the brokenness. Now, have you noticed, near the end of the Proverbs, in chapter 30, there is a guy named Agur. Agur is one of the sages, the writer of the book of Proverbs. He told us how absolutely baffled he was in developing wisdom because all the unexplainable suffering. In verse 2, chapter 30, Agur said, I'm the most ignorant of man. I do not have man's understanding. He's confused. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He's very bitter. He's not just being humble. He's not just being modest. He is frustrated. I'm not very wise, although all of you call me Agur, the sages, the wise of Hebrews, the wise of Israel. When he says, I have not a man's understanding, he using Hebrew word, what literally means, I'm mentally impaired. I have an IQ of an animal. That's what he said using that Hebrew word. And the same Hebrew word is also used in another place in Psalm 73 where the psalmist is looking so frustrated of how the wicked succeed, but then the righteous and the innocent suffer. Good people suffer. Good people experiencing bad things. In Psalm 73, the same word is used by Agur. Why the innocent suffer? Why the good people oppress and trample into the ground. Probably you have the same question. You probably have a bleak 
perspective of the world. Agur feels the same way and he says, when I look at all the exploitation, when I look at all the suffering, the unexplainable suffering, I don't feel wise. I don't feel like I understand that any, any of this makes sense. And I'm like a stupid animal. That's what he's saying. When we look at the world, you probably say when you see a baby being killed in front of the mother by an ISIS you probably say, I don't see wisdom behind that. I don't, I don't know. And Agur says, I don't see wisdom unless I'm able to find some way of understanding that I'm able to see what's really going on in the world. I don't feel like I'm wise. And then Agur says in verse 4, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What does that mean? This is what it is. He's saying, I'm in the valley. I'm in the dark path. But when you're in the valley and you're under the, street, uh, under, under the trees, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you seek, you feel like, I don't know what's going on unless I could climb up. And one of the, the mountains or the mountain's peak, then I can look above all this valley. I may get a big picture. He says, if I could get a big picture and the only person who had the big picture, who is the only person that, who has the big picture? The one in heaven. The one who has wrapped up the water in his cloak, who has gathered the wind in the hollow of his hands. Agur says, unless God comes down from heaven, and speaks directly to me and tells me what's going on in this world the evil and suffering and injustice I see out there all the time it's not gonna make sense unless God tells me I'm I'm still gonna be frustrated unless God told me then I'd have wisdom until then I don't then he actually says at the end who is this person what is his name and this is what's interesting. Who is his son? What does that mean? Wow, this is like a prophecy. What's going to happen in the New Testament? Now, centuries later, in John 3, there's a guy named Nicodemus was having a discussion with a young rabbi. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Nicodemus was trying to be complimentary to Jesus. He says, you know, for a young man, for a young rabbi, you're fairly wise. Your teaching is pretty good. Jesus didn't react the way you might expect. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm so glad people are finally understanding. You know, I'm so glad that I've made the big time. Uh, that's not what he says. He says, you have no idea. Then he says in chapter 3 in the book of John, this is what he says. Suddenly, he quoted, he quoted Proverbs 4, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 4. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Nicodemus must have, could not believe his own ears because Nicodemus is an expert of Proverbs. Nicodemus would have known the Hebrew scriptures. That's what Agur says. That's what Agur says. 
And Jesus says it. I am the one that Agur is talking about. Who has gone up to heaven and come down. That's the only one who can give people, you and me, the ultimate answer. And here's Nicodemus saying, you're pretty wise, you know. And Jesus says, I am the one that Agur was looking for. I have come from heaven. I am the man of the mountain. I can tell you heavenly things. I am the source of the ultimate wisdom. Imagine Nicodemus hearing that. And then Jesus adds in the very next verse, something he surely wouldn't have expected that anybody would have expected. He says, And so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son must be lifted up. He's talking about the cross that whosoever believes on him may have eternal life. He's comparing himself on the cross with a stick where there is a serpent when all the, 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 the Jews, but at that time, bitten by snakes and they were safe. He's saying, that's, that's me. That's the ultimate answer to the biggest question of human wisdom. You wonder why there is an unexplainable suffering? You wonder why the innocent suffer? Jesus says, look at me. I am the ultimate innocent sufferer. I'm going to go to the cross even though I don't deserve it. Even though I've lived a perfect life and on the cross, I'm going to experience the ultimate suffering. I'm going to experience insecurity unto death. I'm going to experience the absolute rejection by my friends. I'm going to experience the absolute betrayal by my closest friends. Who are they? Peter, Judas, everyone. I'm going to experience government-supported violence. Who are they? The Romans, the Jews, the Pharisees. I'm going to experience utter hopelessness. The wrath of the universe, the wrath of God is going to come down on me. And I'm going to do it so that someday I can end evil and suffering in this world. In consummation. Without destroying you, I'm going to do it to pay for your sins. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate wisdom. It's the cross. The finished work of the cross is the ultimate wisdom. Only if you bring the cross into the center of your life will you finally have the answer to the big questions of wisdom. You know, in April 2004, there was a Time magazine cover story called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? It was during The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie. In the article, there's a short story of an African-American writer that told her story when she was a young girl, her young girl, her mother was killed by her boyfriend, beaten to death. And then uh, she could remember the blood on the mattress, the blood on the wall, the blood on the floor where the mother died. For years and years, she struggled and she said, how do I make sense out of this? How could a good God, how could a good God allow this happens to me? I was, at that moment, I was, I was still three years old, four years old. 
She couldn't. Like Agur, she said, I don't feel like I, I have wisdom. I, can, I don't see wisdom behind all of this. And one day she was in graduate school class when they were talking about Christian doctrine, especially about the crucifixion. And throughout the class, she experienced, um, I think, new birth. And she suddenly realized, this was in the article, she said, I suddenly realized Jesus did not just suffer for us, but Jesus suffered with us. I suddenly realized Jesus knew what it's like to be beaten to death by somebody who has loved him, who should have loved him. Jesus knew what it was like, and he did that just for me. Suddenly, the faithfulness of God was bound into her heart. Do you see that? Suddenly, she realized, I can trust Jesus. Folks, friends, our God is not just a God who stayed up in heaven and said, well, I can tell you why your mother died. It's very hard to understand, but I have purpose in all of this. No. Here we have a Lord who comes down and actually gets into our suffering, gets into our suffering with us. He was beaten to death. He experienced injustice. Jesus experienced violence. Jesus experienced everything you and I have experienced, and even worse. For what? So he can walk alongside of you. What happened to that African-American writer? She said, I suddenly realized I can trust him. I have a God that I can trust because of the cross. You know what was happening? She was binding the faithfulness of God to her heart. It finally, it, it, it's finally sunk in. It, it made her able to handle life. She realized that here we have a God who suffered with us so that someday he can remove all suffering without destroying us. If you want to have a real wisdom, you have to take the cross into your heart. Not an abstract, oh, God loves me, God loves me. Sometimes I'm wondering with all the modern uh, songs when they say God loves me, but when they don't describe God loves you based on the cross, they can think of God loves me because of my materialistic blessing, because of my healing, but that's, that's good, but that's not enough. See the cross, reflect on the cross, gaze upon the finished work of the cross, and that will bind the love and the faithfulness of God in your heart, and that will give you self-knowledge, that will give you wisdom, and it will change everything. And not only that, bringing the cross into every area of your life, because think about the cross. Think about the cross. Jesus won through losing, right? We sang it earlier. Jesus got power by giving all his power away. Jesus ruled through service. Jesus got wealthy by giving all his wealth away. If you bring the cross into every area of your life, every relationship, your wealth, your emotion, and start to work it out, you will see how, how wise it is, what wisdom is all about in your life. The world says, if somebody wrongs you, pay them back. The cross says, forgive them. If you do that, go ahead. See how wise that is. The world is wrong. The world says, keep your money and spend it on yourself. 
take it to the cross. The cross says, give it away and wait until you see that's wisdom. The world is wrong. Bring the cross into the center of your life and it will make you wise. You see that? When you do this, you're not a legalist. When you do this, you're also not a liberal. You're not a conservative, but you're also a person that is touched and changed, regenerated by the gospel. You become gospel people. By the way, this is the gospel logic. It is no longer about rules or laws or mere principle that I have to do this or I have to do that. But Jesus has done it. Jesus has finished it. That's why now, through him, you and I are able to do it. That's why, through Christ, you and I are empowered to do it. That's why, in Christ, I don't have to be like the world. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has redeemed us. Christ has won the victory. That's why, now, you and I are his. We are secured. You are the beloved of God. My starting point is, it is finished. Gospel people will not be boastful and prideful. Why? Because when they are successful, they know it's all because of God. It's all because of His grace. Gospel people will be confident, not on themselves, but on the finished work of the cross. That's why when they're successful, they know it's all from God. They can be humble because they realize everything in their life is given by God. They're empowered and sustained by grace alone. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that sustained us. Gospel people will work hard. We'll apply all the pattern, all the principle, because then gospel people will still be at rest when they experience the problem of wisdom because they have Jesus as their ultimate wisdom. They can still be calm. Why? Because through the cross, they understand sovereign grace. God allowed this happen because there's a greater good. God is in control. God is sovereign. If he permits something happen, it is for our sanctification. It is for our good. It is for a greater good. You will have wisdom. You see the implication? It's very liberating. The implication will give you clarity. And you will have true wisdom if you see life through the lens of the gospel. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for giving us Jesus, the wisdom of God. Thank you for the finished work of the cross, the foolishness to the world, but unto us, it is the ultimate wisdom of God and the power of God. Today, as we listen to this message, may this message calibrate all of our hearts. We repent before you because we desire the wisdom of this world. We try to create our own wisdom but today, Lord, make us wise through the one who came down from heaven and went back to heaven through the cross. We need it so desperately. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we know, even in our suffering, if there are some people here and some people who hear through online, maybe they are going through some suffering, we pray that you will be there for them. You will reveal that you are with them. Your name is Emmanuel, that God is with them. Thank you for the practical nature of everything that we've learned today. Thank you for the pattern, but also we also be thankful for all the exception 
all the problem of wisdom, may we see life through the lens of the gospel so that we can be wise by the gospel. Help us to apply it to our lives through the power of your spirit. We ask this prayer in the name of above all names, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.